Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 190. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach, and I am pleased to be joined again by the multi-time world champion, black belt under Marcelo Garcia, and all-around supermom, Ms. Emily Kwok. Emily, how are you doing? Hello, hello. I'm very good. I'm very good. Thanks for having me back. I am always happy to have you back. Anything exciting happened since the last time you were on? I, I know you won pans. Anything else? Let me see. I mean, I don't know. I guess there's always exciting things happening. But yeah, you know, pans, I, I've said to a lot of people, was the gold medal that eluded me. And and what I mean by that is, as an adult competitor, I won Mundials, and then I won Nogi Worlds, and then I won Nogi Pans. But I'd gone to compete at the Gi Pans, you know, multiple times, and I was always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Or maybe I was the ugly stepsister, I'm not sure. And, uh, I thought to myself, hey, you know, I've had my third child. We're not doing this again, 100%. The factory is closed. And I have uh, taken some hits to my body from, you know, carrying three babies around inside and outside. And so I said, you know what? My goal over the next few years is going to be to look better and feel better than I did before I had all three kids. And I thought it might be fun to to give myself a focus. So I, I, I said, you know what, I'll, I'll go do pans. And granted, it was not the adult division that I competed in. I, I fought Masters 3 for the first time. But I had three really great fights. And uh, I was super proud of that because a lot of the times in my sort of climb through the jiu-jitsu world, there has often been not so many people to fight against. So, you know, to have a, a division where I was going to have three fights to the gold was pretty awesome. And uh, I would say that the ladies that I was fighting, they were all game to to go to war, which was more awesome. And yeah, that was that was a pretty big thing for me, you know, to be able to do that. So pans happened. Now everybody's asking if I'm going to keep competing and I don't know, Steve, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like, I never like to say I'm done or I'm retired, but it's very tempting and it's very easy to say, yeah, I'm going to compete and I'm going to get back into it. But it's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. And I have a lot of children. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Just being real. <laughs> You know, that's part of the reason why I never went down the competition path. I remember when I started jujitsu thinking like, you know, well, everyone seems to be competing, so I'm going to give it a go. And then the more that I think about it, the more I think this seems like a lot of work. Yeah. And I don't know, I'm kind of averse to that. I already got enough stuff to do. But yeah, that's amazing that you you came back after all that time off. One pants, that's fantastic. Any mental models for moms who are in the same boat, people who are coming back after having kids? I'd be curious to know if you've got any advice for people in the same situation. 
Yeah, well, coincidentally, I mean, not that this is some sort of a shameless plug, but I'm actually in the midst of recording a five-part series with competitor moms who have stopped to have children, one or more, and uh, talking about pregnancy and motherhood and what it is to balance that and potentially come back into the competitive arena. And look, I mean, for myself, I respect the game and I respect my my peers so much that I don't think I would feel good, you know, just showing up and being like, oh, you know, I thought I'd just drop by the tournament and see how I did this weekend. Like <laughs> it, it means too much to me. And, it, and I think it means a lot to my competitors for me to show up right. So if I decide I'm going to do something, I'm going to make sure that I do the work to prepare and to feel good about what I'm doing. Because one, it's good mental assurance for me that I understand what amount of work that I've chosen to put in and what sacrifices I've had to make to show up to the competition that day. I do it to also honor my competitors, you know, like I would never show up and be like, oh, yeah, I was only like training a little bit before this, or I was only coming in one time a week, but I just thought I'd jump in and see how I do. Like, you know, there's no such thing as let's just see how I do. I think anyone that really wants to compete at a high level should take their opponents seriously because it's anybody's game. And the time off having children, you know, because when I came back and I did masters in 2018, that was six years off with two kids. And then I, you know, surprise, surprise, got pregnant with my third child, which wasn't necessarily something that I had planned. And I had to take more time off and then COVID hit. So then it was another three years again before I decided to do PANS. So with these large layoffs, one would think, well, the momentum's kind of waned and maybe I'm not in as good shape and this and that. But, you know, mentally, I did a lot of work during that time, partially because of what I do professionally, you know, like being able to to work in the peak performance field is is definitely a huge benefit. But aside from that, I think not competing so much when I had spent the first you know, 10, 12 years of my life competing helped me take myself less seriously. And what I mean by that is I just didn't put as much pressure on myself to come back and compete as a mother, to come back and compete having had other life experiences made me say, you know, I'm doing this because I want to do this. And it's something that I'm celebrating. I'm not doing this because I have to prove anything to myself anymore. You know, and I, and I think that's, that was part of what plagued me towards the latter part of my, my initial foray into competition. And so to anyone that's thinking about, you know, coming into competition for the first time or resuming competition, male or female or otherwise, because just because you had children or you had a long layoff, I always tell people like, remember your joy, like remember why you're doing this. And if you can kind of keep that close to you, I think the results will always be good, you know? And I think that the blessing of having children and having a family is, you know, that there's more to, more to think about than than just yourself. And it's fine if you don't have kids. I'm not not a judgment on them at all. But like when you have three little smiling faces and you lose a match or you've had a hard day training, you just know that, you know, you're blessed and you're in a really great position of privilege to be able to not only have those beautiful children with you, but that you also have the ability to go train and do something that you love that gives back to you, you know? So I think it was actually, I've been saying this a lot to people lately at 41, I'm 1000 times a better competitor than I was, you know, when I was 27, 28 and I won the world. 
So I, I think anything's possible, but it, uh, so much of it has to do with your intention and, and your joy, as opposed to maybe your obligation. So that's an amazing bit of advice here and something, Emily, that, I mean, like I said, I'm not a competitor, but I did notice a similar change in myself when I had kids. It recontextualizes the things in life that used to bother you a lot. Suddenly, a lot of the problems you used to have, they feel much smaller in comparison. I mean, I remember when my daughter was born, just almost immediately, I had this change in my mindset at work where things that used to bother me a lot and that used to take up a lot of my time and attention, I suddenly realized they were much smaller problems than I had thought they were before because now I had this point of comparison. And when you've got something as important as a child in your life, suddenly a lot of the other day-to-day issues that you might be having, just they don't seem as big as they used to be. At least that was my experience with the situation. Yeah, a thousand percent. And I also think that like when you have children, your life, I won't speak for everybody, but I'll say for myself, your life is kind of not your own anymore. You know, like you you can't just do things because you want to. The decisions that you make and the actions that you take there's repercussions to those actions, good and bad. And so you you now have to think about these dependents. They didn't ask to be brought into this world. So like if mom wants to compete and it means that mom's not going to be home six nights a week, you know, like that's the sacrifice you make. And you say to yourself, do I want to do that? Or like, can I train during the day? Or like, what, you know, what can I do? And so you have all these other decisions that are not just about yourself. And so I don't know. In some ways, you think having more to think about complicates things. But I think sometimes parenthood can help simplify things because there is really, in my eyes, nothing more important than the well-being and the growth of that child. And I think it also helps you sympathize with the growth of others, you know, like when you think about the growth of your students or your friends or, you know, the people around you. To me, nothing is more important than allowing people to find their joy. And if you are a part of that process and you get to train with them or you get to teach them or you get to learn from them, like that's really, I think, what we're ultimately here to do. And so having children for me kind of realigned my priorities internally and it stopped being about, okay, like I have to prove to people that I'm good and I have to prove my worth and I have to be somebody in this space. And it became a lot more about, Hey, this, this art has always given me a lot of joy in my life. And I have to remember that. And it's okay if you don't feel like training today. And, you know, if you only want to train two days a week because you have you know, parental responsibilities, that's okay. Like you can redefine all of this. And so part of my, part of my quest or part of my focus, I think, in competing with children has been redesigning what training and what competition looks like on my terms, because I just can't do what I did before physically or just professionally. You know, I have mouths to feed and I choose to have work outside of a jujitsu school and I really enjoy that work. And when I think about, you know, my training schedule, I can't train six days a week, two times a day like I used to. My body can't take it. And I'm not saying I'm old and crippled, but I am saying like I housed three human beings in my body and it's changed. So, you know, I have to be a lot more cognizant of how I'm training so that I don't injure myself. I have to do more maintenance to make sure that my core and, you know, everything else is kind of working the right way. So, Earlier on in my career, I think I was much more likely 
to have a socialized response of like, oh, I'll just do what my teacher tells me to do, or I'll just do what everybody else tells me to do because everybody else is training six days a week. Who cares if this is really hard on my body? But now I'm just like, I can't just think about what I want to do or the results that I want to have. I have to think about if I do this, can I pick my children up and put them to bed at night? (laughs) If I do this, will I have enough energy to make them dinner? If I do this, will we have time to go on vacation together? You know, like there's a lot of trade-offs and I give a lot of props to people who are choosing to train and, you know, for those people who are also choosing to compete There's a lot more going on there than meets the eye. And one of the things that I really enjoy about the master's divisions, and this is something that is new to me, right? Because I came up in a time where we just did, you know, you just fought whoever showed up. And to fight masters, this is really only the third tournament that I fought masters. I love the vibe of masters because everyone is just happy to be there. It's just a totally different vibe compared to mundials or or adult pans because for a lot of those people, they're at a different stage in their life and their careers are on their line. But for me, I'm just like, well, you know, what am I going to say if I keep competing that I'm like a 20 time gold, you know, gold medalist? Like that's kind of ridiculous. I'd rather just be here because I really enjoy it and see how much my game has changed and if I can still do this. And I think a lot of people are, are, are that way. So I just find that when we compete in master's divisions, I feel like there's just a more openness and like people embrace the fact that we're all there doing like grateful to be able to do something that we really love. And so I want to support that. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting consideration when you talk about the difference between the youngins and the master's classes. For the people who are earlier on in their journey, they have real table stakes. They haven't necessarily built the reputation yet. And a lot of their potential future success, at least they probably feel like now, whether or not it's true is another debate. But a lot of people going into the younger tournaments probably go in there feeling like their whole life is on the line and failure is not an option and their world will end if they don't get the result they wanted. Whereas I think masters is almost more of like a celebration. A lot of the time, people always just seem so happy when they're doing it. And That's not to say they're just goofing off. I mean, master's matches are intense too, but I think those people just being at a different stage in their life, they bring a very different mindset onto the mats than people who feel like their whole identity and their whole lives are wrapped around needing to succeed at this very moment. Something that we talk about a lot, especially with the younger competitors, is just the mental toll that being a competitor can take on you. And the advice I keep hearing from the more experienced people is that learning to detach yourself from that need to win all the time is just so key, not just to your own mental health, but often to your performance as well. Oh, yeah. I said this to a client of mine earlier today, who's a competitive athlete in a different discipline. And I said to him, it's not about winning. It's about doing something you love. I think that for a lot of us, when we come to quote unquote competitive jujitsu in the adult divisions, like it's a different stage of our lives. And for those of us that choose to pursue that, you dream of that gold medal and you dream of being at the top of the podium and you dream of people talking about how amazing your jujitsu is. But like when you get over-focused on I should win because I trained harder this time, I should win because I've gotten second place the last three tournaments and it's my turn you kind of start to put your focus and orientation around an expectation that doesn't really exist yet. You know, it doesn't allow you to be present. It doesn't allow you to be there in the moment because you're already thinking about what should happen. There's no guarantees. 
right? And like, when you think about your orientation through an internal point of like, I love this. So I've just been working really hard on all these new moves, or I've been taking on a different style of game, or, you know, I've been focusing on my stand up, and I want to see if I'm able to get a takedown. It makes competition and it makes performance so much more fun because it's not about what everyone else expects from you. It's about what brings you joy. Like, why are you doing this? Because I'm having fun. Why are you doing this? Because I'm growing. I'm learning. And it takes the pressure off. But too often we come at it from the other way where we want to, you know, set the bar and say, this is my goal. Like, that's what I need to do. And I'm not saying that like setting a goal is a bad thing to do. But I think you can block yourself very easily from being at your best when you put your focus on the superficial aspect of what it means to be good, as opposed to just feeling good and feeling present in the moment. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. And I think that's probably good advice that I'm sure you'd want to share with the the younger kids out there, because I do know that a lot of those people who are trying to make a run at being a pro jujitsu competitor, they carry a lot of emotional weight with them. And I don't know, maybe they think that all of that pressure that they put on themselves helps them compete better, but I'm not sure about it. I mean, I talk to a lot of people who do this professionally and they compete professionally, and it doesn't sound like a good time living in their headspace. No, it's it's miserable. It's miserable. And then you're all locked up and you can't really do what you want to do anyways. I'll tell you what. So the last three tournaments, okay. And for anyone that wants to poo-poo me because it's it was like Masters 2 and Masters 3 and I wasn't fighting, you know, the new 22-year-old on the block. I'll just say in all of my tournaments, you know, when I was a, a black belt in the adult division and I competed from the age of 19 through 32, right? Before I kind of took some time off, I would win, but sometimes I wouldn't win decisively. Like it would be by an advantage or, you know, it'd be by a few points. Now that doesn't mean that there weren't certainly times where I submitted people, but like my results were a bit all over the place. Since I came back to compete in 2018, you know, I did masters and then I did a New York open and then I did the pans. My performances have been like way more dominant, like all either one with submissions or for the most part, like a big majority in points. My orientation to how I showed up that day and thought was, I'm just really happy to be here. And I've been doing this for 22 years. I'm an old lady. I'm double the black belt. I have an incredible corner uh, and stable of people that have supported me all these years. It was a very holistic open sort of embracing approach to my old lady knowledge will will take me very far, you know, and like, I know myself, and I performed under stressful conditions, and I don't want to perform like that today. And so it was just a very different experience. And it was an experience that I liked a lot more. And I think that's what's made me think, oh, like, maybe I want to keep competing, maybe I want to do more tournaments, you know, but like, again, that doesn't take away from the amount of work that goes into competing and the amount that I have to sacrifice with my family and my husband and just my sanity doing, you know, whatever else it is that I'm doing. Because when I prepare, I, I, I try to give myself the space to do what I, what will give me confidence on that day. And that includes, you know, working out with a personal trainer, going to Pilates, going to yoga, making sure that I have therapy. You know, it's, it's a lot of work. I, I spend a lot of time trying to keep my body in good shape so that I can do what I want to do. 
you talked earlier about how when you're young, you can kind of do things because you want to. But when you're older, you have obligations to the people around you that can prevent you from just doing whatever you want all the time. And man, if anyone out there is thinking about having kids, I would say that that is the one biggest difference when you've got a kid. I mean, I'm so envious in some ways of the people who don't have kids because you can just leave the house if you want to. I mean, I remember those days where my wife and I would be sitting and thinking, do you want to go get dinner? And one of us would say yes. And then we just go do it. It wasn't a thing. It was just, you just go do it because you want to. Now, when you've got kids, I mean, leaving the house for any reason is like planning the Oregon trail. It is ridiculous. (laughs) And you don't truly, yeah, you don't, you don't truly understand it until you've been there. You know, if I want to leave the house, there is like a whole day worth of prep to make that happen. You got to find a sitter, you know, if, especially if it's going to be both you and the spouse, then yeah, you definitely have to have some sort of childcare replacement. You've got to make sure that everything is in order so that the babysitter or whoever can come over. You then have to to go out. If you're going out with the kid, you have to pack a small procession full of things to make sure that the kid is okay. You got to pack all of their their snacks and their accoutrements. And of course, depending on the age, you probably have to pack a change of clothes because they might just soil themselves at any moment. Like it's a totally different thing. The process of preparing to leave the house, I never would have thought that it would be as complicated as it is once you're a parent. And I've only got one kid, so I can only imagine what a, just a circus it must be for you guys over there, for you and Jerry. And I'd love to know how all of this factors into a training schedule because it <laughs> must have been complicated. Yeah, well, it becomes, I mean, I, no joke. It's like a small zoo, right? Like I, I said to, we were out with friends the other day and they too also have three children of similar age. And we went to get pizza. And when we walked into the restaurant, the host was like, Hey, how many people? And we're like, 11. And I was like, Holy Christ. How, how is this? How is it two families? And Dominica was with me. And I was like, How is this that two families and one extra friend is 11 goddamn people? We could have like rented out half the restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a lot. And yeah, 10 minutes is an hour. You know, when you have three children, you're getting bonked on the head every which way, every second of the day, because it's mommy, mommy, mommy from like different people. So it's a lot. And then when it comes to training, that's personal time. Like what is personal time when you have children? You know, like your own body is not your own. So how do you detach yourself from your children so you can go do something for yourself? So like, you know, if my children are in school or they have camp or something like that, I try to make the most of that time. Sometimes you're training at weird hours and you also just have to take what you can get. So if you know that you can't train for four hours a day and you can only train for one, you better make that one hour the best goddamn hour you ever had. So it just, I think what it does is it, it really helps you value and appreciate what you do have for yourself more. You know, like, I wonder if when, when we're in earlier stage with less dependence or responsibilities, this isn't to say that, you know, people in that stage of life are irresponsible or not considerate of their time. But like, quite frankly, if you decide to train every other round and you're on the maps for three hours, you can do that because you have all the time in the world and you don't have to answer to anybody. But when you have three little people that are hungry or like you feel bad for your spouse and you need to go home and relieve them, it's like you better make all of those rounds count and you better take everyone that you've got because you can only train for an hour or 45 minutes or whatever. And that's on a good day. You know, sometimes you just don't even get to the gym because something happens. So yeah, I mean, I think the practice of essentialism 
knowing what's essential and what's not. I had a conversation with someone else earlier today about just like, don't sweat the small stuff. There's never going to be a perfect time to do everything, whether it's like, you know, get that work done, have a second baby or do that move. There's just never going to be a perfect time for any of it. So like the most you can do is try to set it up. The most you can do is put your intentions in the right place and be prepared for the moment. But when it shows up, just just go and and don't sweat the small stuff. Like if it doesn't work out the way that you thought it would, that's okay. You, you're going to go to sleep and you'll wake up tomorrow and you'll get another opportunity, you know? So yeah, in some ways I'm really grateful for having my children because that time off and just the focus of having them, I think really helped me rehabilitate my brain. I think that my psychology was largely broken when I stopped competing in 2012. Yeah, I feel something similar, not for competitive reasons, but due to work related stresses. I mean, I used to take everything I did at work incredibly seriously. I mean, <laughs> at the moment, I, I'm probably doing four different things that any one person would classify as a job. I've got a lot of stuff on the go, as you know, and the challenge that I have always had is taking things too seriously and not enjoying them for what they are and enjoying the moment for what it is. And I try now to adopt the mindset that everything is a game, right? Everything is a celebration. Business is a game. Jiu-jitsu is a game. Anything that would otherwise be stressful, I try to look at it as a game and a challenge and not get emotionally hung up in the results and, you know, not be too worried about, oh my God, am I going to have a bad outcome at work that's going to tank my career? Or am I going to you know, release a bad episode of the podcast that's going to cost me 50% of my listeners. <laughs> I try to just look at it as a game and something that's going to be fun and something that I'm going to enjoy doing. And I've just, I find that mindset to be so freeing and liberating. I know I've talked on the podcast before about how there was a time when jujitsu stopped being fun for me. It was as I was getting close to getting my black belt and I just had so many expectations around what kind of grappler I should be because I was about to get this black belt and I just didn't feel like, you know, man, you're going into this red ocean when you're dealing with black belts. There's so many world-class black belts out there, and now I'm going to have the same rank as them, and there's no way I'm good enough, and I just beat myself up over it to the point where jujitsu just stopped being fun, and I actually quit. And it wasn't until I was able to reframe things mentally and kind of look at it more as a game and a celebration and just something I do for the sake of it, because it's fun. That completely changed not just my motivation to train, but it actually had a marketing improvements on my ability to perform, uh, which I yeah. didn't expect. I was almost immediately way better just when I was able to free myself from these expectations that I carried with me. Yes. And like, that's what, you know, I think somewhere along the lines in the last 10 years, I went from thinking in short cycles to thinking the long game, you know, and like when things are short and you just think tomorrow's the day and like, this is the year and this is going to be the tournament and this is, you know, it really, it screws you up, you know, because you, the buildup, the buildup screws you up. And quite frankly, like having lived almost, I mean, maybe half my life, we'll see, <laughs> but I'm 41. And so if I live another 41 years, awesome. But if this is halftime, like, I feel like I wish I had had a longer view a lot, many more years ago, you know, because I took I took myself too seriously. And one might argue, maybe I still take myself too seriously, you know, but it's like, 
I try to think about the fact that the only constant in this life like, is that things have to grow and evolve and change. And you can either do that with love and you can do that with open arms or you can do that with you know, grinding your teeth and hating what you do and feeling obligated and feeling owned. But when you think about it, nobody really owns your growth. Nobody owns what you learn. Nobody owns what you're going to be except for you. And so I've tried as I've gotten older to be less judgmental of people and their choices. And as long as they're not hurting anybody, I'm like, okay, go do you like go do your thing, you know, and with my children, same thing, I want to teach them good values. And I want to teach them to be good citizens. And then I want to equip them with the things that they will need to learn so that they can go sort of uh, take up their potential, you know, and, and be the most that they can possibly be. But we don't start out that way. You know, like, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's the ecosystem of, you know, different schools and competition that we get wrapped up in or how we're introduced to the sport and we're taught to sort of, you know, look up to or in some cases idolize certain individuals, whether they be competitors or not. But I guess it's human nature for us to want to look up to something. But I think when we look up to that thing and then we make that thing more important than our orientation towards what it is that we're doing. I think that's where we do ourselves a disservice. And, you know, when I, when I work with high level performers, no matter what the field, whether it's athletics or, you know, being a founder of a startup, it's very interesting. Like when people can't take different perspectives and when they're kind of stuck and they've, they've set the bar or they've set so many sort of goals or things on, on all these pedestals and like what happens to them when they don't reach that you know, perfect image in their mind of what it's supposed to be like. It's just so different what that journey is like compared to somebody who's just like loving every second of what they do and taking all the bumps and taking all the high fives, but knowing that like the bumps and the high fives, even though they're totally different reactions, totally different outcomes, that that's part of embracing their joy for the thing that they're doing. So, you know, it's, and it makes you more present and it makes you appreciate what you're doing in that second, in that minute of that day, it just makes you appreciate things so much more. And then when it's done, it's done. And and then you're like, Hey man, like, let's, I just hope I get to live another day like that. Like that was a glorious day. That's, you know, I think that that is the way for myself in this stage, at least in this stage, like, I just think like, that's the way I want to live. Yeah. You know, I'm at that stage now with my kid where she is starting to learn that winning and losing are a thing and you don't always get your way. And as you can imagine, she does not like losing. (laughs) And I've been trying to coach her on this and explain to her that, you know, you don't win everything and losing isn't necessarily something that you should get upset about. It's an opportunity to learn. And perhaps more importantly, it's an opportunity to celebrate your friends who did win, right? Nobody can win all of the time. And if you win, that's fantastic. But if you lose, part of your job is to celebrate your friends and to be proud of them for their victory. And so if you look at their victory as something being taken away from you, that's just a really negative mindset. And I'm only now starting to realize how damaging that is, right? Because if you're afraid of losing, then you can create this mindset where you won't even necessarily try because you don't want to get into a situation where you could lose. And I think a lot of the time too, you can also brainwash yourself to think that the consequences of failure 
are greater than they actually are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you plot it out, most of us, you know, we're not getting chased by lions during the day, you know. Even if you're a pro jujitsu competitor, in the grand scheme of stresses that you could face in your life, that's pretty minimal. Your life will continue on if you don't get the outcome that you wanted to. And that perspective helps out a lot because once you understand that, that, hey, this is just a, it's just a game, right? It's something we do to explore a practice and to get better and to have fun. And once you detach yourself from that, and, you know, once you get to the point where you're not afraid of losing anymore and you can do something for the enjoyment of it, not only are you more likely to have a good outcome, but you're more likely to improve, to have a good mindset, to enjoy the time that you have. And all of that stuff proves to be so important for longevity. Yeah. And I mean, easier said than done, right? Like very common saying that I use a lot, you know, are you fighting to win? Or are you fighting to not lose? Most of us are playing a game of fighting to not lose because what it's, and it's a game of scarcity because it's, it's something that we, we find, oh, I, I got a little bit ahead here. So let me just hold on to this. Right. And it's funny because one of the, one of the matches that I'd had in the last few years was against a newer, a newer black belt. And they had a very particular kind of guard that they were comfortable playing. And so the match wasn't very interesting to me because this person just kind of glommed onto my leg and it was very clear that this person did not feel secure going to any other position. Like they just wanted to play that game, right? And in my mind, I think to myself, well, I have probably a dominant style that people are aware of, right? But like, I also want to be at a level where I'm not afraid to go anywhere with you because I will be technically superior. And so the mindset that I try to take on now in competition is one of abundance and one of fighting to win. I would rather lose fighting to win than win fighting to not lose. And, you know, when I fought at PANS recently, the semifinal and the final match were super fun to fight because the two people that I was fighting against wanted to win too. And so it just made the matches better. Like there were more exchanges and, you know, things were opened up, you know, there were mistakes made and there was recoveries. And so I think they were just more interesting matches for me to fight. And they were more interesting matches for people to observe, but trying to find a a way to open yourself up, right. is like, why did I fight that way? Because I finally came to a place where I trusted myself enough. I trusted what I knew enough. And I also just didn't care. I was like, okay, like Emily Kwok winning gold at Pans three times or Emily Kwok becoming a five-time Masters 3 champion is not going to change my life. You know what I mean? Like it's going to, sure, it's going to make me feel good about what I'm learning and it's going to make me feel good about the fact that I'm able to go out and execute and perform. But the bottom line is it's not going to change my life. And so, but I, I don't know that I could have said that 15 years ago, right? And let's let's be honest, maybe it did change my life when I won gold medals at the world championships. Like maybe it mattered then, but like now I'm just like, ah, fuck it. You know, let me just go and and see what happens and, you know, like fight people my own age. That's kind of cool. Train the way that I want to train, you know, have the training camp the way I want it to be. Like there's just all these different ways that I tried to approach it and I went in with the mentality that I just, I wanted to fight to win, which meant that I was willing to open up more to showcase what I actually know, as opposed to getting an advantage point for a, a foot sweep and then holding my partner down inside close guard. 
You know, I'm like, I, I fought like that before. And I remember being terrified when I'd get one point or, you know, I'd have a slight edge on my opponent. I remember being terrified of opening up and like losing that thing, whatever it was that I had. But when you take on that mindset of scarcity, like this is all that you have, this is the only point that's going to be available. It's silly, right? You're just like, of course, that's not the only point that's available. There's so many more points to be had. It's limitless how many points you can have. But if you want those points, you have to open up and go get them, right? So like that's, I think that was like a big change for me. And again, props to everybody that's out there trying to test themselves. Way easier said than done. As I'm openly admitting, it probably took me almost two decades to get to this place. (laughs) That's fantastic. Now, I would ask you here, piggybacking on top of that, maybe that's a good time to start talking about specifics. I would love to know how were things different this time around? You talked about how you came in and you had re-engineered your whole process. What was your training and your prep like when you've got the obligations of family? And of course, you know, you mentioned we're getting older. There's different considerations when you're 40 versus when you're competing at 20. What was different in your training leading up to the competition that worked better that you wish you could have done when you were younger? Good question. Long answer. I think that granted when we are, you know, look, I've been a black belt longer than I was a colored belt. I'm pretty certain that most of the people that I fought at PANS and most of the people that I will fight in master's divisions, the vast majority of the time, I'm literally double the black belt because I was a black belt when they started jujitsu. You know, like I've been a black belt for, wait, 2008. I've been a black belt a long time. I got my black belt in 2008. So that's that's a long time. You got your black belt the year that I started jujitsu. Okay. You see? You see? (laughs) (laughs) So like, perfect example. So I'm, you know, I've been around the block a little bit. And so when it comes to, you know, the technical approach, I've seen a lot of things. That doesn't mean that I practice all those things all the time. And my body, quite frankly, is at a point where I can't do everything that I always want to do, right? So like one of my students and and somebody that teaches at the school a lot, this guy named Shane, he really likes Delahiva stuff. And so he's like, man, he's like, you'd be so good at playing Delahiva. Like, how come you've never incorporated this more into what you do? And I was like, you know what? I'm not sure. Maybe it was the way that it was taught to me. And so we went through this whole series where he was teaching Delahiva and I was trying to do it. And sure enough, after like five or six reps, my left hip totally spazzed out. And I'm like, Ugh. oh, now, now I remember why I don't play Delahiva. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't play it because I can't, you know, <laughs> or, or if I do, it's got to be very sparingly. And so the reality is like, I cannot just do things on demand anymore without potential repercussions, physical repercussions. And If my hip goes out or my neck goes out, like this could be not days, but it could be weeks of discomfort and pain. It could be nerve issues. I mean, I don't mean to just complain about injuries because we're we're all dealing with something, but you know, I've been doing this for 22 years and I, and because I'm 150 pounds and not 195 pounds, I've taken the brunt of a lot of force over the years. Right. And like, I didn't train as smartly back then as I do now. So I have to be careful with that kind of stuff. For pans, I wanted to see if I would, you know, knowing that I had depth in jujitsu, like in terms of exposure to technique and exposure to high level competition, I told myself like, Emily, can you trust what you know? And so I trained jujitsu three times a week, not five, not six, but three. And 
a lot of the training I largely, you know, organized myself because it's my school, it's my roof, it's my terms. And I have lots of friends that were also really willing to help me. So the benefit of having done this for a long time is that I have a lot of great friends in high places that are willing to help me do the things that I need to do. And not just friends, but also students. I have some amazing students that are, have become great training partners. You know, it's it was kind of comical that two of my main training partners were, you know, like 200 plus pound dudes at my gym that are like a purple belt and a brown belt, but they were able to move with me in a way that challenged me, right? So I was careful and selective about the types of people that I was training with. I was training three days a week and I spaced those days out so that I wasn't giving myself repeated stressful exposure. I worked out three times a week. You know, I would go see a personal trainer one day. Shout out to Antoine. Antoine's a, an Olympic gold medalist in the four by 400 relay. So I thought that would be kind of cool to train with somebody who'd also accomplished something at a really high level to see how they might train me differently. And uh, I worked out with him. I worked out with one of my students, Mike, who who owns a gym locally. I did like a small group fitness class with him once a week. And then I do another session that was like essentially like programmed for me. I took another day to do Pilates and physical therapy, you know, and, and then like every other week, I would also have body work done like massage or an osteopathic treatment. So I did way more recovery work or a balance of recovery and strength and conditioning more than jujitsu, because at this point in my career, jujitsu is kind of harmful to my body. And I'm wary of observing friends of mine, my business partner, like people that I am close to who are advanced in age, like in their 40s or 50s, who have lived a life of physical stress, you know, by choice, you know, because they were biking or surfing or doing jujitsu. And they're at the point where their body, body parts are expiring. And I'm like, I don't want to be like that, you know, so I have to train with more moderation, I can't be stupid. And I just have to watch like what I'm doing now. So I gave myself the room to have that balance. And I tried to be smarter. And, you know, I don't know if winning pans was any any indication, but I feel like it was a, a check mark for hey, like Emily, this works like for you, this works might not work for everybody else. But for you, it works. What would you say is the main difference in terms of your game, so to speak? I mean, I know that's a big amorphous concept and everyone uses it and it's kind of hard to pin down what it even means. But if you were to go back in time, you know, 15 years ago to the competitor you were then, how has your jujitsu evolved since then? How has it changed? I'm presuming you're not just doing the same stuff, but I would love to know the thought process in terms of what the evolution of your game has looked like. Yeah. So I would say that I still stylistically play a lot of open guard. I still do play a lot of single leg X and X guard. I mean, really just a lot of people know, just don't let me get under you. Right. <laughs> but what has, you know, happened over time is my hips and, you know, my glutes, like a lot of the core muscles and the leg muscles that are used to play that guard are not in the shape that they were in 15 years ago, primarily because you know, all of that stuff, you know, hanging upside down like a koala bear, it's hard on your hips. And I just don't think the integrity of my hips is that great after having three kids. Some people may know this, other people may not. When you become pregnant, your body releases a hormone called relaxin, and it, it's there to make your ligaments stretch and loosen up so that you can birth a child. Well, when you birth babies, like your body does not go back to what it was, you know, like you can try, but it does not go back to what it was. So I've had a lot of hip issues over the years. And, 
you know, each subsequent pregnancy was harder and harder on my body. I couldn't do a lot of the same things. And so I still play an open guard. I still play single leg X, but I've had to modify some things. So, you know, some people may know that like, I don't always play with my inside foot underneath my partner's butt. Like I'll take that foot out and I'll actually stomp on the inside of my partner's pelvis. So like, Mm -hmm. so then I have my, my glutes and my whole leg working to keep their body weight off of me. Because if I get a big person under me, my hips, like I just don't always have enough strength to use that inside leg to sway them. So I've made modifications. I'm very comfortable in those positions. So I will naturally gravitate towards them. But you know, like I've had, I have students that are very curious and passionate about learning new jujitsu. So they teach me things. I have friends and peers that I work with that also share what they're doing. And so I experiment. But I think maybe the biggest thing stylistically was 15 years ago, I probably was a little bit more tight in my strategy. So I might have gone into a match and be like, oh, this girl, she likes to pull guard. So I'm going to make sure that I pull guard before she does. And my strategy will be to sweep her really fast and then try to pass her guard because you know, she's not going to be good with passing and and that'll, that'll be my strategy. That's going to be how I get her. I used to think in a much more linear way where I had specific outcomes in mind that I would play out. And now I just go in and I'm like, I literally say this to myself, like as I'm stepping on the mats and as I slap hands and as the match starts and, you know, pardon, pardon my French. And I, and I'm only saying this figuratively. I don't actually personally mean this about any of my opponents, but I'm just like, Give me everything you got, bitch. I got an answer for you. <laughs> like, I'm like, you want to stand? We can stand. You want to go on the ground? I can go on the ground. I'll do anything you want because chances are I've been there before and I'm going to fucking win. And like, that's what I tell myself. And again, like it comes from that abundant mindset of I have competed for you know over two decades. I've competed against dudes. I've competed against some really strong women. I've won and lost against the best, you know, some of the best in the world. And so that doesn't even include all the people that I've trained with at Marcello's and at various places. So I just trust in in what the facts are, right? Like I can't, and I say this to a lot of people when I work with them, like you can't deny the facts. So when you do the work, that is security in knowing what you've built with your own two hands or what you've built with your body, right? It's like, no one can take that away from you. Nobody can erase your picture. Nobody can erase your name from the fact that you were there six days a week, 10 years ago, or you were there, you know, every other day, five years, whatever it is, like you did the work. So trust that your body knows this shit and just get out of your own way. And so when I get out there, I have less I used to look at my opponent's matches or I would worry about what they were going to do or I'd prepare for their particular strengths. And now I'm just kind of like, you know what, I'll just go in and I'll get a sense of the quality of their movement from how they engage with me. I try to read their energy a lot more and I try to be really present. And that that also speaks volumes, right? It's like, if I'm not over-focusing on like, oh, I got to get this takedown with this leg trip and then grab this and pass the guard that way. Like when I'm not focused on those types of superficial details, I can instead focus on, oh shit, my opponent's trembling oh man, she doesn't want to reach out and grab me because she's scared. Or when she grips up, I can feel that they're frightened to move. So then that is more information that I think that's more beneficial information than, oh, she plays a really good bottom game. For me, like when they're in that state, then I'm like, oh, fuck, I can do whatever the hell I want here. You know? So I've just been able to focus on different things because 
whether I've talked myself into this place or it's just evidence, I, I trust what I've done. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense. Now I'll ask the, the hardest part of this equation here, which is how do you convince your partner to let you do all of this stuff? Because like you said, when you're older, you have obligations now, you have family. It's harder for you to just go do something because you want to. You've got variables in your life that you have to balance in order to make that equation line up. You know, you got kids, you got a partner, you might have other work responsibilities. It's harder to just drop everything and do a, you know, a one month training camp or whatever. How did you work that with your family and all of your other obligations at work to, to balance that so that you could still prioritize this competition? When I was younger and I was dating, I think when I met Jerry, the one significant difference about him versus everyone else that I dated was that he made me feel really safe. And so there granted, as we age, we change and we probably want and see different things. But the one thing that I think will be a constant for me is I want to be in a relationship and I want to have a partner that is supportive because I didn't have that support growing up. And, and I think that really hurt me. Like I, I always think, Oh, maybe I could have done more. Or I would have been this, or I could have done that if my parents had seen me and if my parents had acknowledged me and if my parents had cared about what I was doing. And so when I met Jerry, I always noticed that he was a, he was very nurturing. And, you know, the one thing that I always appreciate about him is that he is so secure with himself that he's more than happy to step aside and give me the space to grow. Maybe in some people's eyes, that looks like I just run gunshot and I do whatever the fuck I want. But like, that's a choice that he made to be with someone like me. And I was very upfront with him, you know, like when we were dating, I was like, I want to compete and I want to do something in jujitsu. And, and he loved that, you know, so he was really happy to support me. He was a firefighter at the time. And so he was really excited to provide a foundation for me to go chase my dreams. That didn't just extend to that period of time, you know, when it came time for us to want to have a family, you know, it was openly acknowledged, hey, like, if you want to go back and compete, if you want to do this, if you want to do that, no problem, just tell me, I'll stay with the kids. And so I think for a lot of people who've met Jerry, or who are familiar in our circle of friends, a lot of these people will say, oh, I love Jerry, or he's such a great guy, or people who have just met him will say, oh my gosh, you know, your husband's really great with the kids, or it's amazing that he wants to be with the kids. I'm like, yeah, well, he's retired, and he enjoys that. And that was part of our, like, we spoke about that, you know, like, I, I didn't want to marry someone and be, you know, doing this by myself or not being able to do it, because I was going to have to be the one to maintain the household, you know, and like, you know, when people make that choice, like if that's what they want to do, I think that's amazing. But like, I was very upfront with my partner and I always have been to say like, it's important for me to be able to pursue things for me. And as a, as a parent, I also think that, you know, I wouldn't be a good parent and I wouldn't be a good partner if I wasn't feeling good about myself. And if feeling good about myself means that I have to go live in my body and challenge myself, then so be it. That's, that's the little space that I carve out for me. So Jerry's always been directly and vocally very supportive of my career. And I know that's rare. I know that's not going to be every partnership. I know, I mean, owning a school, how many times have I had to let students go because they're like, I don't want to quit training, but my spouse or my partner, they think that I love jujitsu more than them, or they don't like that I'm here three nights a week and they think I should be with them. 
everybody's kind of got to work their thing out. But for me, I didn't know much. But I, the one thing I did know early on was like, I need to be with someone that will give me that space to grow. I'm also very, very fortunate that along the way, I met who I met, and I, I get to work amongst people that, you know, value performance, right. And so when I started working with Josh independently, shoot, like, I have friends that ask me all the time, they're like, do you do you work? Like, how is it that he surfs all day? And you're like, doing competitions, or you're doing this and that. And I'm like, it's, freaking awesome that I get to have a job and I get to work alongside someone who values doing something that you love deeply. And that is the work. Like I'm, I, I know that seems kind of weird maybe for people to understand, but like when you devote your life to understanding yourself and your process more deeply through something that you love, how is that wisdom? How is that knowledge not translatable and valuable to others? So, you know, the fact that we cross paths and I get to be on this journey working alongside him, you know, he scolds me for like, you know, when I was, you know, right after I had my kids, I'd be like messaging or texting him back about something. He's like, Emily, you just had a baby. I'm like, I know, but like, I also get to do what I want when I want. So like, this is awesome. I'm happy to answer these emails and I'll, I'll rest tomorrow, you know, like the baby's sleeping or, or whatever it may be. So again, like, seeking out the life that you want and and following that bliss and 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 following abundance and surrounding yourself with people that you know again be vocal be authentic be vulnerable be genuine about what your intentions are and what you want like how can you not create the best ecosystem for yourself to grow you know and like i think that a lot of the decision making that i did early on i might have not known where i was going but I just knew that I could show up and be honest. And I think that's how I ended up in this place where I get to do a lot of what I love to do. And I don't really need to sacrifice that much time with my kids because I get to work from home most of the time. You know, so I, I don't think I could be happier. And if I complain, it's like 1000% first world problems. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and I guess I should probably add for listeners who are, I guess, new to the conversation here, Josh is Josh Waitskin, the author of the book, uh, The Art of Learning. Highly recommend that book. We've talked about it extensively on the podcast. In fact, BJJ Mental Models was very much inspired by that book. So highly recommend everyone check it out if they haven't already. Yes, yes. Chin chin. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, Emily, we've talked about the importance here of surrounding ourselves with with good people. Let's talk about what you're up to. You mentioned at the beginning that you've got a really awesome project in the works. Are you at a point now where you can talk about that in more detail or is it still top secret? I feel like I should talk about it to like pressure myself to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so... I get a lot of emails and messages on social media from either expectant mothers or women who are considering to be mothers or partners of people who are pregnant and just a lot of questions about, hey, like this is happening. I love jujitsu. What do I do? Or like, do you have any advice for me? And so I usually direct them to a couple old interviews that I did years ago. But it's funny, right? Like, I guess that goes to show you how much jujitsu has grown because these questions were not coming up 15 years ago, but they're coming up now. So to me, that indicates that there's more females training. And so I thought to myself after I did The Master and the Apprentice, which I really enjoyed doing and, you know, still percolating on maybe putting together another season. Shout out to Opoku who keeps who keeps poking me for more. But I, I really enjoyed putting together a podcast. And I thought, you know what? I don't think there's any 
material out there right now that exists for athletic or competitive women who want to maintain a career or they want to continue to pursue what they're doing, but they also want to have a family or, you know, they're questioning how they're going to manage all of this. And so I reached out to some individuals. I think it's okay for me to say, because I think I've got their verbal buy-ins and most of them are on the books for interviews, but I interviewed Karen Anchunas. I'm going to be interviewing Vanessa Wexler, Anna Carolina Schmidt, and also uh, Rachel Morrison-Cassius and Sarah McMahon also agreed to come back and talk to me. You know, these are women who have accomplished great things on many levels, and some of them are maintaining careers in jujitsu competitively, and some of them are maintaining careers in jujitsu and, you know, professionally or have done that. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's kind of my way to honor some of these amazing women who are doing it all. Like I, I don't think I'm going to call it having your cake and eating it too, but I kind of want to give it that spirit because I just want to show the world that like, you don't have to give up on yourself or you don't have to sideline your dreams forever. If you decide to have a family. Now, it does mean that some things have to go by the wayside temporarily. But you know, you have all these amazing, incredible, beautiful women that are killing it in so many ways. And so I wanted to share that I wanted to share some of their stories. So I'm in the middle of recording that and it's going to be a five part series. And then the other thing that you know, I shared with you, Steve, is that Over the years, as I've done a lot of teaching and private lessons, that it occurs to me that so many students and so many teachers, we learn things because this is the way our teacher learned them, or we learn things because this is the mechanics of the movement. And I get a lot of people that come to me in private lessons and they say, hey, like, can you fix my game? Or can you tell me what I'm doing wrong? Or can you teach me how to win? And when I ask to move with them a little bit, they inevitably know jujitsu. It's not like their game is broken. But what I find is often they're missing certain qualities or dynamics that would pull their game together more. And so, for example, tension and slack. Like you need to have both tension and slack in your game. But when do you have too much of one and not enough of the other? Or how should that operate? What does it look like? What are the good outcomes of having a lot of tension? a lot of slack? What are the bad outcomes of having a lot of tension, a lot of slack? Speed or strength or position or movement, you know? So like there's all of these, we call them polarities, values that have to exist together in order to maintain some balance, if you will, like to create a to create a healthy tension in whatever it is that you're doing, it can't just be one thing. It usually has to be two, right? And like the foundation of polarity work kind of comes from this idea that most problems are not simply solved, meaning there's very few equations in life that are going to be two plus two equals four. Most of the things that we have to manage are more complex than that. And so polarity management is something that I've been training in and trying to understand better because it helps you balance those things and helps you bring more awareness to what you are and aren't doing. So when I had, you know, approached the subject with you, Steve, it was kind of like, oh, hey, like, do you think that this would be a value to the jujitsu community, not just an instructional or not just another way to learn technical jujitsu, but to essentially teach and communicate and build awareness around 
the values of jujitsu, like the other, the other forces at work. And a lot of the times I think these things are not openly taught because we, I don't know if it's fair to say we take them for granted, but like, I can't tell you how many times like I get students or people that have said, Oh, like, but you do it like this. Or when you do it, it feels like this. What am I missing? Or when I trained with Marcelo, he was able to do this to me really easily. And I don't know what I'm missing. And usually the secret ingredient that's missing is one of these other qualities that's like not necessarily taught, right? Like how do you teach tension? How do you teach off balancing? Like, of course you can teach those things, but it usually isn't the same way that you teach mechanics, right? Because when we learn a mechanical movement, a technical movement in jujitsu, it's like one, two, three, four, five, here are the parts, now go do the move. But when you then add like, okay, you want to work with the idea of off-balancing somebody, like that's a little bit different than just the technique behind it. It's teaching the value and the, the principle, and the, like why would you want to do this and how do you do it and when should you do this? So I want to create some sort of program to help train these things because I think that these qualities are really important for us pulling our games together. And I don't think it's really been done in jujitsu yet. And I said earlier in this interview, like I'm thinking about things in longer cycles. And I really think like, I know it's been said before, but I, I will beat the same drum is like, we're still so early on jujitsu, you know, like we feel like we might be late, but I think we're still so early. And I think there's still so much to be learned and so much to be said about how we can evolve and how much more we can learn and how much more effectively we can teach. And so I hope to make this maybe part of my legacy, which is like to, to communicate these types of principles more clearly and effectively so that people can improve. And one, I think it's something that needs to be done. And two, like, I think techniques will come and go, right? Like we've seen, like, look, you see techniques get recycled. You get, you see things that evolve and change. And I've been doing this for 22 years. I don't have the ability and I don't have the time or the attention span to go be a master at the 50 different types of guards we now have, you know, like I do what I do. And I'm not saying that that's the only thing I'm ever going to do, but I just, I'm not at that stage in my life right now where I have the focus to want to go learn every new guard that there is and master it. For me, what's more interesting is helping maybe like from a little bit of a different perspective or a different position, trying to help people make sense of their jujitsu in a holistic way that will work with any type of guard or any type of system that they want to take on, but just how to organize jujitsu better in their brain and their body. So that I hope that wasn't too confusing for the listeners, but it's something that I've been devoting some time thinking to. And yeah, if you're interested in following along, please, uh, please reach out, you know, like, and, and I'll keep you posted as, as I put that together. Well, that's as good a segue as any, which is that if people do want to follow you, check out your stuff. You know, you've talked before about how during the day when you're not doing jujitsu stuff, you're a peak performance coach. If people are looking for something like that, how can they find you, connect you, follow you, reach out to you? Yeah, you can go to emilyquok.com and read a little bit about what I do. Or you could also just message me on Instagram or, or something. And sometimes I respond. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes there's like a lot of messages that come through. I guess maybe the surefire way is to, to email me if you're serious. But uh, yeah, I work with, man, I, I work with a lot of really cool people. I work with some incredible artists. I work with some thought leaders and founders and elite athletes. 
tech founders. Like it's, it's a really great big mixed bag of high level performers. And essentially what we work on is helping them optimize themselves. So like, how do you work in a way that gives you more freedom, not just literally, but also like, you know, what speaks to your soul? Like, how do you find a way to embrace and take life on in the best way? How do you be a better artist? Like you may already be like really good and selling your work in many places and appreciated, but how do you make art so that it really fulfills you from the inside out? How do you create the career that you really want? So it's not, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily life coaching, but it's it's helping people understand themselves better, helping them understand their process better. And why am I doing this? Well, essentially, that's what I've done as an athlete, right? Is I've had to dig into my own process and figure out how to be good, <laughs> how to perform well. And so a lot of my work is just based around helping other people find themselves, develop more conviction in who they are versus who everybody else thinks that they should be. You know, when I when I get to work with all these various individuals, inevitably, there's always a tension around like how they should be doing things or how they were taught to do things. And a lot of the time we focus on how to free them up from not expecting or not putting a structure around them that they need to follow, but rather how do they build the structure? How do they build the ladder that they need to climb themselves? And really people who are the best at what they do know how to do that. They know themselves. They're not there following a map. They're not there following a protocol that somebody else typed out for them. They have done the work internally themselves and they've developed the conviction around that. So, and that's not easy to do, right? Like it's, I think it's really hard for a lot of us because we look at what others have done and we imitate and we want to grow and learn from those people because whatever it is that they're doing has value, right? And so we go, okay, well, if I keep doing this the way that they've done it, maybe I'll be like them. But at a certain point, and this was kind of like what my first podcast project, The Master and the Apprentice was about, at a certain point, we leave structure behind, like we leave what has historically been there to then take what we've learned and internalize and make it our own. And I think that that is really the the gateway, that is the path that you want to take if you want to be an optimal performer in anything that you do. But it's an incredibly hard thing to do because you don't only have to have the experience and the grit and the determination and the love to take all that on. But then you also have to find a way to build the confidence and self-belief that this is your way, you know, and, and it's going to work. So it's super rewarding work. I'm, I'm super happy to be able to do it. And if people are interested in understanding a little bit more, they want to set up like a, an exploration call, they can do so by contacting me. Awesome. And as always, I will put those links right in the show notes. So if any of this sounds good to anyone, just go through, click there. You can go to Emily's website, contact her, find her on Instagram, um, even check out some of her other stuff like her awesome podcast. Uh, all of that will just be through her website. So there you go. Easy to find. If any of this sounds interesting, just pull up your phone, go to the notes, <laughs> press the button, do the thing, and then Emily will be on the other end. <laughs> So there, there is my, my half-baked sales pitch. But, but anyway, yeah, I highly, I mean, obviously I highly recommend working with Emily. And of course, if anyone out there wants to listen to a lot more of Emily talking, um, she's got her amazing podcast, The Master and the Apprentice. Again, I'll link through with the, the show notes to that as well. Also, there's a ton of stuff that Emily and I have done on BJJ Mental Models Premium. Again, I highly recommend everyone check that out if they haven't already. Premium.bjjmentalmodels.com is where you go to check it out. There's a free trial. Highly recommend everyone do if they haven't already.
already. Again, there's no cost to giving it a shot. Supports the show. Always greatly appreciate that. One more time, that's premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. Emily, thanks a lot. That was an awesome chat. I think a really interesting profile into what competition looks like as you get to the next stage of your life. And I think that probably there's going to be a lot of people listening to this where it really strikes home. I mean, I know a lot of people in our community are, they get into jujitsu when they're older in life and they're wondering how they can balance all of the mature adult responsibilities with being a jujitsu competitor. So I think there was some awesome material here today. I hope so. I mean, I know that there's always a lot of different things that we can talk about, but I think that this is, I know that maybe some people will think, oh, they're talking about fucking families and babies, totally irrelevant to me. (laughs) I know there's going to be people that are going to roll their eyes and be like, oh, he brought this bitch back. But what I will say, (laughs) you know, there will be somebody. They might not tell you, but there is somebody. But what I will say is that like, Sometimes I've done things long before like it became the thing to do. And as I've seen the trend of more and more prospective parents or parents reaching out saying, how do I do this? Or like, how do you juggle and manage? Like, this is, I think it's a really relevant theme. It's a real theme as Jiu-Jitsu gentrifies. And it's not just about making kids or like 18-year-old people like lethal killers. It's about middle-aged people who want to live fulfilling lives and discover themselves like wanting to push themselves in different ways. And so this shit is like super relevant, I think, for all of us, you know, and and even if you don't have children and don't want to have children, a lot of the discussion around the pressures that we put on ourselves and the expectations that we have, I think is really worth considering. I just also want to mention like I'm going to be in Halifax in a, a few weeks And I'm also going to be in Nashville mid-August doing a camp. And what I really appreciate about the the people, the communities that I'm going to be working with is these these are communities that are have worked with me before on some level, but like for them, jujitsu is not just like, hey, let's learn a bunch of cool moves and like kill people. It's like, hey, like there's there's a family, there's a community, there's trust that's been built amongst us all, whether we're meeting each other for the first time or we're meeting each other for the third, fifth, or 500th time. And there's a whole process behind that, you know? And like this camp that I'm doing in August, I think is really super interesting because the organizer, Amanda, has made just building more awareness around like why we are doing jujitsu a part of her programming. And so I really respect that because we might come to it because we're like, oh, well, looks kind of cool, or I need to work out, I need to make new friends. And we mysteriously don't know why we're still doing it four years later, or why it's this expense that we don't want to give up. And I think it's because jujitsu gives us so much more than that. So I encourage you, you know, whoever you're, whoever's listening, there are so many different events and individuals that are giving us more reasons to do jujitsu than, you know, just it being an athletic activity. So yeah, so I hope that this conversation helps put some more color on that. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate having you here as always, Emily. And of course, to everyone who spends the time and attention here with us every week, I really do appreciate it as well. I know it's a long show, but I'm glad people get value out of it. And thank you so much for supporting us to all of the listeners out there. Talk to you next week. Take care. Yeah.